BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. I'm TJ Honeycutt. I'm the collections assistant for the Wabash County Historical Museum. Downstairs area used to be a mortuary for the Jones Funeral Home, and you would go down the steps. They turn 90 degrees several times, and then you end up in this limestone basement. And we've packed it with artifacts. There are shelves all around you. It's not quite the end of the Indiana Jones and the (laughs) Last Crusade where they've got the boxes of stuff. We're not quite to that level, but it's the same concept, row after row of stuff and duct work. It's dark down there. It's quite dark. Light switches are in no logical place, so you'll be down there in the dark with no idea where you are or where you're going. There's the original embalming pit. In the olden days, when they embalmed a body, they would usually put the body on this rack that moved up and down. And so you would initially begin the embalming by cutting into the body to drain it. And you would let all of the fluids just naturally drain out of the body into this pit. And then when you were all done, you would bring the body up out of the pit on this hydraulic lift to, so that you didn't have to go down into the pit. The walls of the building still maintain that creepy mortuary look where it's like a stone archway who had the old stone work. So it definitely has, this is a place where dead bodies are prepared feel to it still. So eventually you walk down next to our HVAC system, which is a huge, gigantic boiler and air conditioning unit, essentially. And there are these little white boxes, two of them, and they're labeled on one side Hubbard Bones with the Hubbard Bones accession number on them. And the first thing you'll see is a human looking up at you going to be talking about the murderer John Hubbard today. So the world was quite a bit different when this murder took place. Usually now, if you watch something like 48 Hours, we've got cell phone footage and different pictures and DNA evidence, and none of that was present here because we're talking about a murder that took place in 1854. 
Lincoln was not yet president. Slavery still existed. There were a whole slew of countries in the world that didn't exist yet or were much larger than they are now. And mainly at that time in Indiana, at least Northeast Indiana, the population was highly transient. So you had, you still had some Native American groups who were still around and were relatively stationary in where they lived. But the white population tended to be highly mobile as far as where they would go. So if you've ever dealt with something like genealogy or trying to figure out your family history, chances are during the period of the 1850s, you've got very little evidence because people moved all the time, constantly. And out in a sleepy little community off of a canal, so the town of Wabash was built primarily as a means to get to and from the Ohio River and Lake Erie. And out by the canal, there was a bit of land owned by a guy named Isaac Keller and who let the farm be operated by another gentleman named Lewis. And on that farm, there was a little house and it was step-up house. So you had about 18 inches between the floorboards and the ground and you would walk up because it flooded so often in The reason the area is called Rich Valley is because the soil was particularly rich due to the constant flooding. In and around there, there was a guy named Aaron French who moved in from Cincinnati. He had only been here approximately six months, so he himself was a transient character. But he had attempted to be a businessman in Cincinnati involved in the meatpacking industry and went broke. And so he decided to maybe try out, try his hand at farming. So he moves up here, gets a place as a tenant, essentially a tenant farmer and does what he can with that. And apparently was very prosperous the first year that he did it. And then he became ill. And again, we're talking 1854. So you can't really go to a doctor. And if you do, they're either going to bleed you or give you some kind of weird herb that's just as likely to kill you as whatever is wrong with you in the first place. So he's essentially bedridden like the, I like to imagine like the grandparents in Willy Wonka. His, he, Aaron French was in a bad way. And so Lewis, who was doing the farming in the area and Keller, were his who were basically his only friends cut him some slack and said you can hang out in the house until you're better don't worry about it if you can't pay your rent we'll figure something out so around that time another transient character named john hubbard comes into town and john hubbard rooms with aaron french who was the original invalid farmer and even though it was a one-room house Aaron French, his wife and five children were already living in it. But in generally around that time, unimaginable today, people tended not to actually be in their houses very much. Even if you were sick, you tended to live outside and then come in only at night and when it rained. So it wasn't as cramped as it sounds. But John Hubbard, his wife and son, who was named Richard, his wife's name was Sarah, all move in to this house to help Aaron French pay the bills. And he did so quite willingly. John Hubbard primarily worked on the canal, so it was hard physical labor. Many people died doing the work, and there were also poisonous snakes involved so close to the river. There's not still there today, but it was a risky job. And his 14-year-old son, Richard Hubbard, 
was also employed as a wheelbarrow operator at the canal. So uh, considered to be about the most menial task you could have. So then Isaac Keller and his friends go over to the house. And Aaron French is gone, their friend who they'd been around with. And so John Hubbard and his wife were carrying some sort of bucket around is how it's described as in their court testimony, they call it a slop bucket. <laughs> so I don't know exactly what that means, but they were already outside the house and they see Isaac Keller and Lewis coming and they say, don't worry, they're not here anymore. We're the only ones in the house. And they said, where did they go? And they explain that Aaron French and family had been there only the night before and that a relative had come up from Cincinnati on the train, which had just recently been installed in the area, and informed them that their father, who was a wealthy landowner in Iowa, had died. And they had brought a two-horse wagon, told them to pack up everything that they could, and they were leaving tonight. And they said the response from Keller was, Aaron French can't be transported. He's too ill. And he said, and Hubbard said, no, they gave him some brandy and he was dancing on the floor before you knew it. And he was ready to go. And they decided to leave for Iowa that night and that he had sold all of their remaining possessions to Mr. Hubbard for $40. And that was why he was wearing some of Aaron French's clothes. Because back then, people didn't really have closets. You tended to, for a short history lesson, you tended to have an underwear garment that was a loose shirt and loose pants. And then you would wear a set of clothes over that, basically until that set of clothes disintegrated. And that's what these transient sort of people would wear. And so if you were wearing another person's clothing item, that tended to raise some suspicions. But in the case of... John Hubbard and his wife and son, there were no suspicions raised. They just let it go. And people came and went all the time. So the story was believed to be more or less plausible and nobody really thought anything of it. Another character moves in named Ed Edward, who I like to call Ed Boyle, who was slightly of some sort of Celtic origin. So either Irish or Scots, the different accounts determine that he's different things. So they weren't very culturally sensitive here at the time. <laughs> and But mainly in the canal, they were Irish workers. So it would make sense that he would be from some sort of Celtic region. And he moves into the house as well. They actually, the way he ended up in the house is Richard Hubbard, the son, the wheelbarrow operator, met him working at the canal and offered to take him home in the wheelbarrow. And then they he could rent the place out in Rich Valley because they were about a quarter mile from the canal as it was. So it was a good location for a job. And he agreed. So Ed Boyle's living in the house now. He lives there about four months with John Hubbard, his wife and son. And then Ed Boyle becomes ill. And... The story goes, this came out later in court, that Boyle was a Catholic, which again, probably Irish, just guesstimating with the available facts. And he met with the priest 
and offered the priest several hundred dollars in gold coins in exchange for different funerary rites and his last rites and absolvement of his worldly sins. But then he recovered miraculously. And who brought Ed Boyle to that but Richard Hubbard, the son with the wheelbarrow, because he was ill. And he probably saw that exchange of money or the discussion around said money. Then Ed Boyle disappears. So again, Lewis and Keller show up to their place where they're renting out this house, and they see that this Boyle character has come and gone. And... They ask John Hubbard and his wife where he is, and Hubbard responds that he was a literary man who was very well written and could read and write. That was established. He had written and he had written some things for Lewis, who was himself illiterate. So they knew that, and he said he'd got a job school teaching in Lafayette, which is a town about forty-five minutes away. It's it's suit by car today. So then it would have been days and days. So it was out of reach. They assumed. Oh, Okay, reasonable enough story. People come and go all the time. Boyle had actually quit working at the canal and was working on the railroad. So even more reason to be gone and out of town. So again, multiple disappearances all relating to one guy in one house, but no, nobody really pays any mind. Then the next year, so we're now in through the winter of 54 into 55, Two guys go to go fishing on the canal because at that time, the rivers of Indiana were not yet polluted with tons of industrial and farm waste. And we actually had a lot of fish in the water. And it was an easy way to supplement your income to go down and catch a whole lot of fish. And the canal was particularly helpful for that because the canal was shallow and they needed to drain the canal periodically to repair the walls. So the walls of the canal were actually made of stone, just stacked stone. An old, if you've ever seen that. And so periodically, critters, groundhogs, muskrats, etc., would burrow into that wall and then it would spring a leak. And the canal would naturally start draining and it was expensive to keep pumping the water into it. So they would drain it down and that was usually a great time to go fishing because the water would only be a few inches deep, but it would be completely filled with fish. So all you had to do was scoop a net down and off you go. So some guys went to go fishing on the canal and they discovered human remains in the canal, which had been tied down to a weight so that it wouldn't float. And the no one recognized the body. It was very badly decayed because it had spent the winter under ice in the canal or underwater. So nobody knew who really who that was. And so at that time, what the procedure that went down in 1855 for all of this was that they would call what was called a coroner's jury. And the coroner's jury would look over the body and determine whether or not any sort of foul play was involved. They didn't have a person called a coroner. They would just call a bunch of random people together. And if they thought there was foul play, then a court case would proceed. So it was just like a committee of lay people making a good guess. So if you're a listener out there, you may have gotten to an investigate a murder if you were a hundred years <laughs> off. So what happens is the coroner's jury looks at this body. They still cannot determine who it is in the canal. 
But they find that the skull has been broken in numerous places, probably with some sort of hammer-type implement. And also, some of the flesh was still attached, and it had what appeared, what they would call today, defensive wounds. So it had slash marks on its arms, uh, equivalent to that. So then, immediately, they start putting out calls in local papers, and just generally word of mouth that there's a murdered person in the canal come by and attempt to identify it. And so lots of different people come by to view the body just because it's such an exceptional circumstance. Whoa, somebody got murdered. That's weird. And there was no TV or video games or anything in podcasts, so no one really had anything else to do. So lots of people came to look at this body out of a sense of morbid curiosity, and they identified it as Ed Boyle that it looked very much like him. So that starts the investigation on John Hubbard because his son was seen hauling Ed Boyle all around in this wheelbarrow. And so they'd figured Richard Hubbard would know where Ed Boyle went and how he had died. So they go over and immediately arrest John Hubbard and his son, Richard, and take him away to jail on suspicion of having murdered Ed Boyle. A detective came and knocked on the door and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to Season 2 of Proof wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. So during this time, a few different things happen. It's determined at the time, so I'm not trying to be politically incorrect, but at the time, they determined that Richard Hubbard was what was then called an idiot, that he was incapable of doing really anything for himself and that he had some sort of mental problem or handicap. And so he was actually given a piece of paper 
which state certified him as an idiot. And so if he ever got in trouble or was supposed to sign a contract, he would show this paper that says idiot on it. And then they couldn't, you couldn't do a contract with them. He couldn't be accused of certain crimes because he didn't have the mental capacity in the state's view of doing that. So they released him and he more or less testified that he, to the police, that he had just driven Ed Boyle to and from work in his wheelbarrow on his way to work to on the canal and that he didn't know anything bad had happened to him. And so they determined that Richard Hubbard was more or less harmless and let him go. They also had problems pinning anything on John Hubbard because just like today, you need physical evidence. You can't just make an assumption that because they live together. So they didn't have a murder weapon. They didn't have any kind of time or alibi. And John Hubbard's family didn't report that he'd killed anyone. So that was pretty much as good of an alibi as you were going to get. You didn't know when the murder happened or where or how the body got to the canal. So it's a really shaky case. However, at the jail, which was directly next to the courthouse, the courthouse that John Hubbard would have dealt with is no longer standing, but it's in the same location as the modern courthouse. There was a fire in 1870 that burnt the whole town down. He is in jail. He's there by himself. In fact, they charge him a dollar for putting him in handcuffs because the county had none. They had to actually go somewhere and have them made. <laughs> and so it's pretty derelict. And they also had to pay for the jail cell to be locked because that had not been done before. And they take Hubbard to trial and they view that due, in, due to the lack of evidence generally against him, it's considered that he's not much of a flight risk, and they set a $500 bond on him, which today sounds pretty darn low, but back then $500 was quite a lot, and he couldn't pay it. So he's sitting in jail, and his wife comes to visit him. And at that time, you didn't have the glass and the telephone like they do now. You could just come in and talk to him in the cell, and the sheriff's deputy were in the jail. They were very curious, obviously. Now, currently... They listen to everything that you say in jail, your telephone calls, your visitors, etc. Back then, it was pretty much they just had to overhear it. They had to eavesdrop as best they could. And usually people with a policeman standing there wouldn't say silly things. So they leave Sarah and John Hubbard alone for some of their visits so that they can discuss things. Because one of the main problems was what are they going to do with Richard? Because he's been declared an idiot by the state. So he really can't work anymore because he can't sign an employment contract legally anymore. So they were, they were genuinely worried about what was going to happen to their son because he was pretty much unable to do anything and couldn't support himself. And John Hubbard, who was the only working member of the family was in prison and they start the jailers let him go at first but then they get more and more curious about what's going on and eventually they overhear a whisper from sarah to john of what are we gonna do with the people under the house was the quote so that alarms the sheriff's deputy <laughs> as you could see Perhaps maybe that would be something he would be interested in hearing. So they get Isaac Keller, who owns the land, 
his brother's house is actually just across the way. They used to call Rich Valley uh, Keller Station because his house was there and people would hang out there. And it behaved as an inn slash tavern. And so you could hang out at the Keller house anyways, right on the way to this place. And so they get Keller, who more or less owns the land, and they also get a doctor from the just a local doctor in case they do find bodies. The doctor might be able to help identify them or how long they've been there. So they get in the house and they don't notice anything un- untoward would be the right term. So they decide to pull up the floorboards because the sheriff's deputy who's with them tells them they said under the house. As I said earlier, the house has a 16-inch gap between the floorboards and the floor. So it's pretty sizable so that the – like today, we put houses up on stilts. Same concept. They get down there, and they see that the dirt under the ground, under the floorboards, has been disturbed. And the doctor goes down in there with a pick and sort of probes the dirt with this stick, poking it with a stick, basically, and it catches on something. So they decide to start digging. They had not brought a shovel, just a pick. And so they stick the pick down in the ground and it strikes something. They pull the pick up and there's an impaled infant on the end of the pick. So they stop everything and you know, leave the pick there on the ground and they go and get a coroner's jury together. So the coroner's jury comes over another collection of random lay people and they come and dig up the basement. And in the basement, in order of age, are the five children of Aaron French, Aaron French's wife, Sarah, and then Aaron French at the bottom. The coroner's jury determines that it looks like everyone was killed in their sleep with some sort of hammer that broke their skulls, except for Sarah French, or also named Sarah. So it gets confusing. Sarah French had a broken leg, a broken neck, and a fractured skull, and defensive wounds. So perhaps they killed Aaron French in his sleep, and she woke up and tried to defend herself at some point or another. And then... The children were killed either before all that happened or they did not appear to have known anything about it. They ranged in age from 13 to indeterminate because back then people didn't really keep track of birthdays because child mortality was so high. So if you were under five, they didn't really care. You were just an infant. (laughs) So they had that all the way down. And also, interestingly, Sarah French's body was naked. And everyone else still had their sleeping clothes on, that underwear I mentioned earlier. So why would she be naked? So they investigate some of the things that might have to do with that. And they determined that what had happened is Sarah Hubbard had been wearing her clothes for quite some time. And no one had really thought anything of it because Hubbard said he bought their possessions. And uh, so they decided, apparently, when they murdered her, can't let a good dress go to waste. And so they stripped her down. So now they issue a subpoena for Sarah Hubbard (laughs) because 
she clearly was involved or at least had to have known about it because she it's a one room house. It's not like it happened in another county. So they call together all sorts of people. And they're going to do this trial now of a man and a woman. Hubbard, John Hubbard himself says, I want to be tried separately from my wife because he knew for certain that they were going to give him the death penalty. And he didn't want his, at the time, women, still even to this day, women tend not to get the death penalty as often. And so he divided them up so that his wife wouldn't also be killed. They appointed to him several people. The first person to be appointed to him, he declared himself indigent. He gets a public defender. His public defender was the former judge here, John U. Pettit. His house is still here, his, and his heirs are all still here. They own a printing company today. But uh, so Pettit at that time was about 86 years old, which in 1850 is extraordinarily old. And so he says, even though maybe I'm the most qualified person for a death penalty case, I need help. So they recruit a guy from Peru named Cox. And then another guy who's a local lawyer here as well as part of the defense team. The prosecutors were all also local lawyers and as well as the judge. The justice of the peace was also involved in it in, in the early stages because he, at the time, the legal situation was so weird relative to today where almost every county has a circuit court, a drug court, a superior court. Back then they just had a judge and he did everything. And so the Justice of the Peace handles jury selection. An interesting thing at the time is 116 jurors were called and 98 of them refused to serve in a death penalty case because of the anti-death penalty sentiment of the day. So an interesting thing to note that we're in 1855 and this death penalty thing is a pertinent political issue. And we actually have here in the museum several of the stenographer essentially notes of those jury questionings where they would say, do you have a problem with the death penalty? And typically they would answer yes. And then they'd say, okay, you can go. They would be disqualified by the prosecution. So the court case starts. They have a couple legal strategies to defend John Hubbard because they have now found what they believe to be a hammer in the room in his house, which is about as good as they can get together for a murder weapon. But the primary evidence is that five people were found in his basement, essentially. So that's about as much evidence as you would need. So his their first legal tactic is you have a right to call witnesses for your own defense. So he calls witnesses from New Orleans and New York and Kansas and all these faraway places. And they have to send a letter to these people. And then, of course, the letter never is delivered because who knows where these people are. One of them from New York actually was a real person and showed up for the trial, but the rest did not. So they essentially were just trying to draw the trial out to get time to get some kind of a defense. Then John Hubbard tries for a change of venue and the, a couple reasons why. For one, outside the jail... They had an open window and people tended to yell things at him at all hours of the day and night through the jail window. So he felt he was being harassed. And also during his trial, his initial hearings, a large group of armed men were standing outside, more or less a lynch mob. And that also 
felt very threatening to him and whether or not he would get a fair trial. So they put in for a change of venue and they wanted the venue changed to Grant County where Marion, Indiana is now. And the reason why is Grant County at that time, Marion was primarily settled by Quakers who still to this day are very anti-death penalty. So that was a nice tactic on the part of the lawyers. However, when they do the hearing to assign the change of venue, the armed mob shows up and more or less declares that if they try to remove him from the county, they'll lynch him. And so the judge, to keep violence to a minimum, says, we'll do the trial here, but I don't want the armed mob to come back. And so the armed mob disperses. They are going to do the trial here. It lasts approximately a week. During the week of the trial, a few famous figures show up from Wabash history. Stearns Fisher is a big guy on the canal, was on the jury. Isaac Keller is a witness, obviously, throughout, as is his brother, Jonathan, who was the first ever white person born in Wabash County. And also Dr. James Ford, whose home is now a historic home. It's a museum. You can go visit it. And he ended up serving in the Civil War as well as a surgeon. Dr. James Ford was a friendly witness, and he testified that the hammer that they had no blood on it. And again, you can't use DNA. They didn't know about the power of black lights. So there wasn't any of that. And they screwed the head off of the hammer and red flakes fell out of it. And so a big point of contention was that blood. And Dr. Ford testified that you essentially couldn't tell the difference, that it was red grains, and you couldn't tell the difference between rust and sand. And in his trial transcript, when the prosecution on cross-examination asked him, can you tell the difference between rust and blood, he laughed and said no. Which is pretty exceptional for a physician to say. <laughs> so, the trial comes to an end on a Friday night. The jury stays the whole evening, and they return the verdict of guilty. That you had a supposed murder weapon, even though John Hubbard, who did not testify in his own, had said in an interview with his lawyer, there, surely they'll accuse me of having used the all next. Is like. He was thinking of all the items he owned that they could accuse him of having bludgeoned someone to death with. So the jury returns on Saturday morning with a guilty death penalty verdict. And they ask Hubbard if he has anything to say, and he says that he does. So he says to the court that this was all a plot by Irish immigrants to frame him for murder. And that he had never hurt anyone, that he was friends with the French and Ed Boyle, and that he would never have hurt him, and he wasn't the murdering type, that it was all this Irish plot. That didn't go over particularly well in the court. And he's sentenced to die in December. It was December 13th. And it was, they set up the scaffold on the courthouse ground. It's still there today. It's the same courthouse lawn. The scaffold is not there. And they get a Quaker minister named Skinner from south side of town. The church that he was a part of is actually still there. It's called Friends Church of Wabash. It's there. That congregation still exists. And Skinner 
come, works with him on religious issues to coax him through and uh, maybe get him to confess. And he never did. He maintained Irish plot framed <laughs> and to the end. And then they go to do the hanging. It's December 13th. It was a rainy day that day. And we have several public testimonies of it, primarily Skinner himself. So Skinner reads a speech which had been prepared for John Hubbard, wherein John Hubbard says, From an early age, I learned to take the Lord's name in vain. And that naturally led me to drinking and adultery. And for those crimes, I deserve death. But I have never, ever harmed anyone. And that, those were his last words. And then Skinner reports that they put the hood over him. And Skinner grabbed his hand and said, I'm here. And he said, yes. And then he said, may God protect your soul. And then they hung him. And Skinner's whole plot was then he didn't want to be involved in this to the start. He wanted to leave. But the crowd was about 6,000 people had come from all the surrounding areas to see this execution. It was supposed to be a private execution, but the facility, the county had no facilities for it. So it ended up being a very public affair. So Skinner couldn't leave. He wanted to get away as badly as he possibly could and could not because of the crush of the crowd. And, and then he had also secured the sheriff's promise that his body would not be desecrated. Now, in the 1850s, again, doctors started doing dissection. They had been doing it for a long time. Ben Franklin, for example, in the 1700s did quite a number of illegal dissections. And still doctors were doing it. They had made an arrangement, unbeknownst to Skinner, to get the body already. Skinner, being a, po a popular religious figure, the sheriff says, no, you can watch me nail the coffin closed. So they do. And then that night, the doctors at their appointed hour go to the farm. It was a random farm out in the country. They didn't give him a stone or anything. They bury the body by covering it with dirt. I used air quotes over bury because... It was not at all a burial. They did not dig anything. And then an array of county doctors show up and they agree that a guy from La Fountain, a small town near here, had dibs on the body and that he, after he was done doing whatever he would do with it, he would give pieces of it to the other doctors to share. And so John Hubbard ended up being parted out, essentially. His body was then on display in a drugstore window. It had been reassembled. The skeleton was there. And then it was put in the LaFountain High School, where it was eventually transferred to Wabash High School. And then the uh, it was put in a closet for about 60 years. And then when they tore that high school building down, they gave the bones to the museum, found them and gave them to the museum. And that's where they are today. So we still have John Hubbard. Aaron French the murdered guy and his family, their graves are still visible. They're, they're in Rich Valley. The county paid for rather nice headstones to be made for them considering they were broke. So that's actually a nice little memorial area that's been there for well over 150 years. So that's more or less the story of John Hubbard, the mass murderer from Wabash, Indiana, whose body is in the basement of the museum. We have a plaster casting of John Hubbard's 
head and face. And in it, you can tell due to the, ro- the rotation of his head relative to his shoulders that his neck has been broken. And they literally said in court, hang from the neck until such a time as you are dead, just like they do in the movies. And his friendly witness, Tom James Ford, who you might remember me mentioning, he did the death mask then and there and also added the hair and sideburns to it as well, because that's what he looked like. And he remarks in his diary because James Ford was a prolific writer of memoirs. He said that if you look at that plaster cast, it doesn't look like a murderer. It doesn't look like a crazy person. It might even be a nice guy. And he said that was the scariest part of it. But everyone admitted that it was a good likeness of the guy. So we've got an array of John Hubbard items in there. We have original legal documents relating to the case, including the original subpoena to go and get him or warrant, essentially, would be what we'd call it now, to go and collect him for the murder of Ed Boyle. And then we have also got the supposed murder weapon, which appeared in court, which also James Ford said has rust and or blood on it, cannot be determined. We also have the handcuffs that he was transported in, They charged him a dollar to build those because they didn't have any. They also have the lock on the door, which they charged him for as well. And then to get him out of his jail cell, they had to cut the lock out of the door because there was an accident with the key in that it was lost. And so they had to cut the lock off the door to get him out to go to trial. Sheriff is an elected position here, so it was kind of whoever wanted it. And then his deputies were usually his cousins or brothers or whatever that had spare time. And nobody knew what to do with something like this. It was way beyond what they... Because even to this day, if you ask a police officer here, a very large portion of their job is relating to lost farm animals. And that's not a jibe at them. It's It's a job. But a huge portion of their crime load relates to lost horses and cows and stuff. And I imagine it was way more of a portion of their workload in the 1850s. So that just a murder and a murderer were something they were completely unprepared for. Because all told, his body count was at eight. And even to this day, that's pretty exceptional. And also the fact that Seven of them were in his basement, buried in the floor. What's crazy is that he had a wife, so, like, she had to have been involved. So what was her outcome? So she ended up getting the change of venue. So Sarah Hubbard applies for a change of venue, same lawyers, and they move her to Grant County, where the Quakers were who were anti-death penalty. She ends up being sentenced to life in prison in the women's penitentiary in Indianapolis, where she lived into the 1900s. And as a very old woman, a news crew came here from the Wabash Plain, came down there from the Wabash Plain Dealer, our main daily newspaper. And they interviewed her and they said she seemed like a nice old lady and that you would never have thought that she murdered seven people and then they asked her about the trial or to say anything about her husband and he she said that's a closed book and i'm not gonna discuss it and according to the prison she was a model prisoner so she and another thing about it is that i picture them less of as a bonnie and clyde character because she was his third wife 
and they had only met very briefly prior to being married. So she may have just been a person that got into a really messed up situation and then, oh no, there's a dead family. What do we do? And so that's, I think that's why they took it easier on her, despite the, because they could have tried her here in Wabash, where there were 6,000 people ready to see her home. And they ended up letting her go. It's a, her situation is even weirder. And there's a lot less known about her just in general, because at that time, women typically didn't work. So she didn't have a lot of people she associated with. Another interesting thing to the side is what happened to Richard. So Richard Hubbard ended up getting taken in, adopted by a guy who worked on the canal. And then they moved him to Fort because people bothered him here due to who his parents were and what they'd done. So they moved to Fort Wayne. He remains working on the canal in Fort Wayne. And then when his adopted father died, his son adopted him because being a state idiot, he could never be an independent person. So he was adopted by that guy's son and was completely harmless and never hurt anybody or did anything wrong. And he's buried up in Fort Wayne. So Richard Hubbard was perfectly normal. There was also a rumor for some time that Sarah Hubbard was pregnant at the time she was arrested. And there have been various people throughout the sort of interceding years who've claimed to be the descendants of John Hubbard. But it's there was never any verification because when the uh, the prison that she was in Indianapolis no longer exists and most of the paperwork relating to it was lost and her body was buried in an unmarked grave. MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C.